0: Welcome to Word Processing, a resource of Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. Listen in as we discuss issues of God, His Word, and His people. Welcome again, everyone, to Word Processing. My name is Josiah, and I'm one of the pastors at Oak Ridge Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario, Canada. With all that's been going on in our world this year, many believers have asked the question, or questions similar to, Is this the end? Are the last days upon us? What does the Bible say about what comes next on God's mysterious calendar, and how are we to live now in light of it? These are questions that, among other things, have to do with biblical prophecy. If There's a topic, one topic, that has garnered a lot of debate and disagreement and fascination in the past. It's this one. It's biblical prophecy. And so I wanted to talk with someone who could safely and skillfully lead us through these seemingly murky waters, and I think I found just the guy. Dr. Paul Benware is a Bible professor, theologian, preacher, conference speaker, and author who has a passion for teaching and training the Church of Jesus Christ. He's committed to teaching the Scriptures as the fully inspired Word of God, and you'll hear that in the conversation that follows as he continually goes back to the Bible. He has a deep concern for the Church to learn, know, and live the truths of biblical prophecy, and my hope and prayer is that the conversation that follows will be able to help you to do just that. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Benware. I want to begin by maybe letting you introduce yourself to our listeners, uh, your family, uh, current ministry roles, and some of the passions maybe God has put on your heart.
1: Well, I was in the college classroom uh, for a little over 40 years, and I've, I've stepped aside from actual um, you know, semester-type involvement now. But one, when one's in the ministry, you don't retire. Uh, you retire when the Lord takes you home, but you don't retire. You're breaking
0: that. The, you're breaking that to me now.
1: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so anyway, um, I'm married to my wife Ann. We've been married a little over 50 years. We have uh, four kids who are scattered throughout the states and uh, eight grandkids. And uh, the um, most of our lives have been spent, you know, in the in the um, teaching ministry in a college classroom, but uh, we've always been involved very much in a local church, Uh, sometimes as a teaching pastor, uh, sometimes um, as an associate pastor, sometimes simply being on the board of elders, because, you know, my conviction is that the uh, schools are wonderful and seminaries are great, but it's the local church where God has designed to do His work in the world today, and so we've always been very much a part of local church ministries. Presently, uh, we are not in that capacity, but we are involved in doing, uh, you know, preaching in churches and Bible conferences. And then I uh, take about six weeks to eight weeks out of the year teaching modular courses in one-year Bible schools. I spend a lot of time at in uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, at the Jackson Hole Bible College, and uh, teaching Daniel, Revelation, and Old Testament, and Life of Christ, and uh, Galatians and some books like that. So we've been um, keeping very busy and doing some writing, just got done finishing up a book entitled Understanding the Book of Hebrews. And so, you know, the Lord is, uh, that's sort of my COVID-19 book that one day and I asked, Lord, what would you like me to do during this time? I can I can do puzzles if you'd like me to, but I'd really like to do something else. And it just laid it on my heart uh, because of some previous experiences that uh, the Book of Hebrews, but particularly those pesky warning passages are uh, are real troublesome thing so uh, hopefully we 're making a contribution uh, in that area as well but So the Lord keeps us wonderfully busy uh, involved in in teaching His word, as you know, and uh, the older I get, the more I recognize that it the Lord has a, Lord honors us when He allows us to be in ministry the Lord honors us when He allows us to open His word. There's great responsibility, but it's also a a terrific privilege and honor that he's given to us. So uh, that's kind of where we are right now. We're located in Phoenix, Arizona, that's where we live, but the airport is not that far away. So we uh, hop planes regularly and go here, there and everywhere.
0: Well, you had mentioned a few things in that introduction about your teachings in Daniel and revelation, and it was through your study and your work in prophetic literature that I was first exposed to your teaching it 's obviously gone beyond that, but it's, it's that topic I want to talk to you about today specifically, the issue of bible prophecy and so maybe just to begin with, why don't we start with the simple question: what is Bible prophecy and what makes it unique as a biblical genre, and how can we tell like when i 'm going through the Bible? How can I tell if I've stumbled into a passage of scripture that is prophetic?
1: Well, you know, when it comes to biblical prophecy, it's, it's not a strange and mysterious and weird uh, area of truth. And we, we ought to approach biblical prophecy the same way we do the rest of the Word of God. We take a historical, grammatical, literal approach to it. We let language be language we have to start with the, with the assumption that God wants to communicate things to us. He's not trying to hide things from us. This is not a divine game of hide and seek. Let me see what I can keep from you. But rather as revelation begins, it is the apocalypsis, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And so <clears throat> when we read the scriptures and we do it in a normal fashion, it becomes clear very quickly that um, whether something is uh, narrative, whether it's poetic, or whether it is in fact prophetic, uh, again, I don't think you need to be um, have an advanced degree in theology to figure it out. God has given teachers to the church, but he's also anointed every believer, according to First John 2, to give us a capacity to understand the truth. And so when we open up the scriptures, you know, it's um, Uh, we can tell whether we're dealing with with the prophetic themes or not. uh, Prophecy is nothing more than really um, God's unveiling of um, uh, his purposes. And, of course, some of those purposes have been accomplished already with the coming of Jesus into the world. But um, I'm convinced that what the story of the scriptures is, which includes a lot of prophecy, is that what God is doing is restoring and reconciling everything that was lost in Eden. And so when you look at Genesis 1-3 through and see what God's original plan was, again and again he says, it's good, it's good, it's good, oh, by the way, it's very good. And so when when man chose to uh, disobey God, God had a decision to make, I mean, theoretically. Is he going to destroy everything? and start all over again, which, you know, considering, um, pastor, that's not a bad option. What do you lose? You lose two people, seven days work, you know, a week later, you could be, um, up and running with, with Fred and Martha or someone like that, instead of Adam and Eve. But instead, he chose to restore and reconcile and enhance everything that was lost. And so you look at the last three chapters of the Bible, book of Revelation, and lo and behold, what's that talking about? It's really talking about the things that were lost in Eden, rulership of the planet, um, fellowship with God, and paradise. Those are all going to be restored again. And so the story of scripture is really a prophetic story of what God is, is intending to do. And um, it's, a, it's a marvelous story indeed, when you have those two bookends and recognize what God is doing. So, you know, again, you um, when you get down to the, the details of it, people try to say, well, there's an apocalyptic genre, genre, and uh, prophetic. A lot of times, you have to really define what you're talking about. Those amongst the scholars are even unclear to them. And so, I say, you know, keep it simple, stupid. Just just read the scriptures, and it becomes pretty clear when God is talking about things that uh, haven't happened yet and what He intends to do.
0: Hmm. That's great. So you have two categories as I'm hearing you talk. Prophetic literature that has been fulfilled and prophetic literature that is yet to be fulfilled. How can we tell the difference between those two things? Is it sometimes not so clear? Sometimes it's both and? How do you understand those two, uh, those two categories?
1: Well, particularly when you get back into the major prophets of the Old Testament, you see, for example, God may be talking to Judah about the coming Babylonian captivity and saying this is what's going to happen. And yet in the writing of it, it becomes evident that what took place, for example, with the Babylonian captivity, really did not completely fulfill what the prophet was talking about. And he probably didn't know what he was talking about. Because, I mean, Peter says that. The prophets tried to figure out what in the world they were writing about, and the Spirit of God told them, it's not for you to know. And so there's a lot of things that will be fulfilled in the coming period of Daniel's 70th week, or the tribulation period as we commonly refer to it, even though that may not be the best term, we're stuck with it. So a lot of it's going to be fulfilled. You go back to Isaiah, another example. You go back to Isaiah, and he talks about the future kingdom of God. And Isaiah does not see, nor does Daniel, see a distinction between what we would call the messianic kingdom and the eternal kingdom. They, they blend those together, but further revelation makes it clear in the New Testament that we're talking about two different phases or two different aspects of, of the future kingdom of God. So, you know, it comes down to, number one, uh, approaching it literally, normally letting language be language, and then in the progress of Revelation, we have, uh, you, you can't understand Daniel until you look at Revelation. I tell my students, we're going to, we're in Daniel. We're going to cheat a little bit here, because we're going to go ahead and look at Revelation, where some of this is clarified. So, you know, it, it takes study. You know that one of the uh, important steps in biblical study is correlation, where you take uh, various scriptures in various places and carefully uh, make sure that they are speaking of the same thing, and uh, we have, in, you know, uh, a progress in Revelation. And so that becomes um, a clear, I think, you know, but it takes study. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's just, it's not easy. That's why we study to show ourselves approved unto God. That's why Solomon says in Proverbs 2, you know, all wisdom comes from God, but you have got to search for, as you would search for treasure or silver or gold. It takes effort. It takes discipline on, on the part of, um, of the believer. Mm -hmm. But he can't understand it. He can, he can, he can.
0: (laughs) How important is the understanding of progressive revelation as scripture is unfolded? How important is that in the understanding and the interpretation of prophetic literature? You talked about how Daniel and Revelation are clearly related and Revelation adds light or Uh, elucidates daniel but at the time daniel was given uh that was enough that was sufficient for what they needed at the time so it's progressed so maybe a word about the progression of revelation and uh and how that aids us in understanding prophetic literature
1: sure and i think for most believers just to take it out of the realm of prophecy uh, take the person of messiah for example Uh, go back to the old testament and uh, suppose you're in uh, you know jerusalem starbucks Around 425 BC, and you're sitting around the table talking about Messiah. Whose son is he? I mean, who is he? Well, one person brings up the argument that he's uh, he's deity because he's the everlasting Father. His eternity, his his comings are from eternity. And then another guy says, No, he's he's of the line of David. Well, you know, we would be in a between a rock and a hard They sure were as to who in the world Messiah really was, if it weren't for the progress of Revelation, that problem would never have been solved. But for you and I, hey, no big deal. It's, he's, he's a God-man. Very clear, very obvious. But we only know that because of the progress of Revelation. And so we come to the Gospels. Um, and lo and behold, Jesus, son of the of Mary, but born of the Holy Spirit comes into the world, an absolutely unique person. So in the progress of Revelation, uh, things are clarified, never contradicted though. Um, when we talk about progressive revelation, it's not that uh, something new or different uh, is being uh, given, but something is added for the sake of clarity. And God in his own purposes decided uh, when to give, you know, information. and. Uh, when it comes to biblical prophecy, it's the same way. You could look at the person of the Antichrist, first mentioned in uh, you know, Daniel 7. If that's all you had, it would, be, it would really be difficult to figure it out. But then you get uh, Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 13 and other passages. And it begins to, the fog bank begins to lift a little bit and things become clearer. But the New Testament never contradicts the Old. It always enhances, clarifies, adds to, never contradicts though.
0: Let's back up uh, and talk about interpreting prophetic passages. So we've come to Isaiah. We've come to Daniel. We've come to even prophetic uh, portions in other books of the Bible. Uh, Maybe give some rules of thumb. You've already uh, talked about the hermeneutics, uh, uh, literal, normal, a plain reading of scripture is pretty important, but maybe some more uh, guidance from you on how to understand prophetic passages in books of the Bible, and then maybe some errors that we should try to avoid when we come to passages like that that are common.
1: Sure. Uh, When we decide that we're going to interpret prophetic literature normally, in other words, letting language be language, what that does is build a fence that we now enter into an area. And normal interpretation keeps us from wandering off, you know, off into the woods somewhere and getting lost. What we need to understand is that uh, when the Bible was written, this is the days before PowerPoint and a lot of other uh, things that were. Uh, help us visually and so there's a lot of figures of speech um, and and word pictures that are used for the sake of kind of embedding in the in the mind uh, a, a particular idea so you have in Daniel you know a beast that has uh, uh, 10 horns and another horn grows up but well, we can kind of see that we can visualize that and so what we need to remember though and this is where um, I think, particularly guys on the internet today, go off the tracks. And that is that um, the figures of speech, particularly I'm thinking now of the book of Revelation, are established. They don't mean anything. The, the locusts of, you know, Revelation 9 are not Apache helicopter gunships. They are not, you know, it's clear where they come from. We're talking about demonic activity. The woman who who uh, is the harlot who sits upon many waters. Harlot and many waters are, are figures of st- speech established in Isaiah and Daniel. So that when you come to Revelation, which is sort of the, the capstone of God's revelation, uh, revelatory truth, the, the, the challenge is to go back to the Old Testament and find out where that figure of speech has been uh, defined and it will keep you from coming up with some of these strange ideas that we hear almost on a daily basis. And that's one of the things that has discredited prophecy, is these interpretations that take the figures of speech and really basically run wild with them. And so that's one of the key things in in prophetic literature, is um, to um, make sure that the figure of speech you're talking about the word picture the metaphor that you understand where it comes from and and what the old testament was communicating about this which another uh, and which you know is for generally for biblical interpretation you know they say to compare prophecy with prophecy there that's an important thing to do but it's also dangerous because the danger is that you will bring what I call illegitimate transfer from one passage into another. Let me give you an example. And I don't know where you're at on the Olivet Discourse, but I have some friends who, uh, when you have, uh, will see the rapture uh, of the church in the Olivet Discourse, and they go to the passage where it talks about two women at the well or men in the field, one is taken and one is left. Well, that sounds so rapture. But it is actually just the opposite. It, they're not being taken to meet the Lord in the heaven. They're, they're being taken away in judgment. So you had to be careful that you don't import that particular idea, for example, out of Matthew 24 into some other passage. That would be an illegitimate transfer. So you got to be careful when you're comparing prophecy with prophecy that you don't do that. Yeah. So those would be kind of the, the, the things I'd say watch out for.
0: When well, you mentioned this earlier, that the rules for interpreting prophecy aren't that much different than the rules for interpreting narrative. Uh, we recently spoke with uh, Dr. Charlie Bing and Dr. Fred Shea on this podcast as well, and they're saying the same things. If you import meanings that are inappropriate and foreign to a text into that text, you come up with really odd interpretations.
1: Yeah. Well, in, in other words, and also, you know, I just got done, so I'm sorry. Of, this is my hot button issue right now is the book of Hebrews. but when you, when you look at the book of Hebrews and you read a lot of commentaries, I mean a lot of commentaries on it, that um, they, they import the professed believer into the into the passage. And the problem with that is, you know, uh, there, are, there aren't any professed believers in the book of Hebrews. They aren't there. You're either a believer or an unbeliever, in the case of Hebrews, it's believers. But what has happened is, and this is true with biblical prophecy, you got to be careful, and we all, we all have to heed this warning, in that we don't import our theology, and our theology uh, interprets the text. To interpret the text and our theology is to come out of the text, not to impose it upon the text. Because when, you, when, you take, when your theology dictates how you uh, exegete a passage, the chances are pretty good you're going to miss something, and maybe something even very important. And, and I'm convinced, again, uh, in just getting done a couple of months ago with the book of Hebrews, that that's one of the great uh, tragedies with uh, so many commentaries on Hebrews, is that they have them, that they interpret the passage by their theology, and they miss out on a lot of what Hebrews is, is, is talking about. So that would be another thing when we come to biblical prophecy, that as best as we can, we, we lay aside our theology and look at a passage and find out what is this passage trying to tell me anyway.
0: A strong understanding and conviction in the authority and sufficiency of scripture is pretty important here, isn't it? I mean, yes. yeah. I mean, if I had, uh, maybe it's prophetic literature is unique in that it's imagery if I'm not careful, allows for my creativity to run wild in interpretation more so than maybe a gospel narrative.
1: Right, exactly. And part of the problem is that the church has grown incredibly ignorant when it comes to biblical prophecy. And so these guys, <clears throat> and I look at them every now and then just, and I don't mean this unkindly, but sort of sometimes almost to amuse myself and think, what are where are they guys coming from? And yet they'll come up with interpretations or statements. And you know that there's so many of God's people out there who are listening in and taking this thing, that this is what God is saying because they haven't done their homework. They don't know really what biblical prophecy is is intended to do and it's intended to basically change us in mm-hmm. the way we live right now. That's the mm-hmm. fundamental purpose of it all.
0: Well, that's a great segue into the next uh, few questions I wanted to ask you. I've noticed that there seems to be a growing aversion to preaching and teaching Bible prophecy in the church today. I'm not sure if you noticed the same trend. I heard of my father and and grandfather's generation going to prophecy conferences. I can't remember the last time that there was one around uh, where I'm living. Uh, so se- there seems to be this growing aversion to prophecy. I'm wondering why you think that is, if it's true.
1: Well, you know, I've had the opportunity in, in this past, oh, Year of, of doing some prophecy conferences, and I have a uh, another one coming up next year. But they are few and far between, and um, it's interesting that I was uh, the people that I talked with at these conferences said to me that they just couldn't understand why it was that these are so rare, uh, almost non-existent anymore. And this has actually been going on. Probably for two or three decades now, when I when I taught at Moody Bible Institute, uh, when I first went there, uh, we had um, uh, prophecy conferences maybe three or four a year that the institute would would sponsor, and those began to die out because um, well for various for various reasons. But um, you're right, Bible prophecy conferences are. Really unusual, though I think maybe there may be um, some returning back to it because uh, people are sensing there's there's got to be more uh, to life uh, than what I'm experiencing now, and the answer is yeah, there really is. You know, uh, what what Bible prophecy does for us is to develop what I call a two world view which is a biblical worldview. That's what the apostles said. You, have a, you live in this world with an eye on the world to come. And when you live that way, you, um, you live better in this life. If you read carefully, going back to Hebrews for a moment, you look at the book of uh, chapter 11 of Hebrews. What characterized all of those people is that they were people who believed what God said about the future. They did not experience in this life, what God uh, had promised. And the the writer uses three different words there about them being strangers, pilgrims, aliens. They were going through this world, you know, the old song, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. That's exactly how they lived because they had one eye towards heaven. And the result is they they had a well-developed two world view which when you read Philippians 3, that's what Paul had. That's how he lived. That's how the apostles lived. And we have lost that because so much of preaching today is a one world view. We want you to be a better husband or wife. We want you to do better with your finances, better with your kids, etc., etc. All of which is great. But the reality is the Bible tells us there is something far better coming. And in the meantime, we need to be serving Christ with that in mind. So, yeah, there there aren't very many Bible con, Bible prophecy conferences around anymore, and that's sort of tragic. Can I give you a, a little story? Please. Okay, I was uh, talking with a pastor who happened to be <clears throat> generally a, a part of the family clan, but he was saying, you know, I stay away from Bible prophecy. It's just too controversial you know, it's so difficult, and I need to deal with the real issues of life with my people. And I asked him a question, and the question has an obvious answer. And I said to him, do you want your people to live sanctified lives? You want them growing in their sanctification? And he had like this deer in the headlight look like, well, of course. I'm, what kind of a stupid question is that? <laughs> he said, yeah, of course. I said, well, have you ever considered the fact that that is the purpose of biblical prophecy? It is to help us live life right now. I said, you check out what John says in First John chapter 2 and 3, because it helps us in our struggle with sin. He says, every man that has this hope, the hope of Christ's return, and I think included in that passage, is our appearance before him at the at his judgment seat, every man that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. And Peter tells us that, you know, in Second Peter 3, what kind of people ought we to be in the way that we do life, in light of the Lord's coming, in light of the end of the age, and all of these kinds of things. This is not pie in the sky, by and by. It's not. You know, you've heard the expression, this guy's so heavenly-minded, he's of no earthly good. I've never met anyone like that, by the way. If a person has a two-world view, they live with greater excellence in this life. And that's what Bible prophecy, among other things, is designed to do. It's to remind us God's in control, and God has good things for us. But in the meantime, we are still being, living Godly lives as we struggle with trials and sin and all the rest of the stuff that that we have to deal with, but biblical prophecy plays a very significant role in um, living a godly life.
0: So, hope, endurance—these uh, are byproducts of a strong view of what's coming next, what lies ahead in the future for the believer, and when we think about the times in which we're now living where there's a lot of uncertainty and many people have been forced to admit that they don't have a whole lot of control over their lives, maybe as much as they were pretending to um, what role do you think uh, Bible prophecy can provide for someone who is struggling right now with all that's going on besides the things you've already said, it gives you hope knowing what's coming um, endurance through suffering, anything else that comes to mind that can, uh, you can pastor our people uh, with.
1: Well, yeah, and if I could develop that last point a little bit, um, uh, let me just read what uh, Peter uh, says in First Peter chapter one. And you know, First Peter isn't usually thought to be a prophetic book, but listen to what he has to say. He's talking about trials. Of course, we're very familiar with James and uh, James's uh, read on trials, but Peter says. This is 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6. In this, that is, in these, um, uh, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. And I like that. I appreciate, Peter, because uh, trials do distress us. We don't happily sing, you know, worship choruses while we're in the midst of trials necessarily. Uh, They do distress us. They're painful. They're hard says that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Those terms, praise, glory, and honor, are really related to what will happen uh, at the judgment seat of Christ. Those are, those are uh, some very specific terms that Peter selects. But this will occur at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then Peter goes on to say, in, uh, later on in uh, verse 17, And if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, which is what he's been talking about there, conduct yourselves in fear, reverential awe, during the time of your stay upon earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold. And so in the midst of, of trials and difficulties, which we all experience, <clears throat> you know, I mean, let's face it, we don't ask for these things. If, if the Lord put a bulletin board and say, sign up here for trials, we would stay away from that bulletin board as far as we could. But that's not how it works. Uh, we live in a fallen world and God knows that we need trials to help us apply truth. But one of the values of uh, prophetic uh, teaching is that it gets our eyes strictly off of ourselves and our difficulties and looking at the greater things that god is trying to do in us and and this is sometimes missed is that one of the purpose for trials is that if we pass those trials god can reward us in a greater way you see god's holy and his holiness is revealed in his justice in his with his creation and god cannot Reward greatly people believers who do not uh, pass the trials, and so one of the incentives is, hey, look, this trial you 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 go through this successfully, I'm just waiting here for to reward you in a, in a greater way. You look go back to Revel, uh, to excuse me to Genesis 22, and that's exactly what you see with Abraham and Isaac. I mean, God knew He wasn't going to put the knife in the kid and burn his body up, but He says, now I know. You know, of course, actually, God knew, but now you know, (laughs) Abraham. And he said, it's kind of like, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, now I can reward you in a greater way. And so that's one of the things of trial. It gives, gives us, I think, perspective. We all have these things, don't we, Josiah? We all have them. We don't want them. But when we recognize that one of the things, it's not only just to develop or mature our faith, which is very important, but it's also gives God a free hand to reward us in a greater way in this life as well as in the next to come. So prophetic literature, prophetic truth tells us that it, it informs us about that. So I think that's one of the values of, you know, in, in the present life as well.
0: For sure. Maybe, could you say a word about prophecies that have been given that have been fulfilled, maybe in Christ has been mentioned that just, testifies to god's faithfulness to his promises as well
1: well if i don't you were going to ask me that question i would have perhaps composed a list but uh, as you mentioned you know there are so many things that related to the coming of christ mm-hmm. where um you know the you know dozens and dozens and dozens of exact prophecies are fulfilled which shows that uh, god says something he's going to do it I'm very impressed with passages like Psalm 89 where God's and uh, I just preached the other day at a church in Florida on Psalm 2 where uh, God has makes it clear, I have anointed my king on Mount Zion. It's one of those things where it's put in the, it's a future event, but it's put in past language because it's a, it's a done deal as far as God is concerned, but God says on oath. I will not lie to David. I will fulfill what he has to what I have told him, and the, you know the we we can trust what God says when He says that Jesus is coming a second time. When Jesus comes, He's going to establish, as Hebrews says, He's going to reign upon the inhabited earth. In other words, His kingdom is on this planet, not in heaven. It is here, and it goes on and on. And all and we know that we can depend upon these prophetic utterances because God in the past has fulfilled exactly what he said he is going to do related to the first coming of Christ, or uh, even in relationship to the deliverance of his people, you know, in the Old Testament stories and so on, where God makes promises, he always comes through. God does not lie, Paul says, so that when he says, I'm going to do these things, you know, know he's going to do them. And that's something for us to to hang on to. Because I don't know about you and, and your people, but I know that a lot of folks uh, here, you know, you, you talk about the incredible unrest in the world. We seem to be at breathtaking, descending into a level of, um, of godlessness that um, not just in the Western world, but in just so many places as well. And we kind of wonder, you know, uh, As Psalm 2 says, the nations, the kings rage against God and against his anointed. And um, all of a sudden, the silence where God's apparently not doing anything, you hear him laugh. Mm -hmm. God laughs because uh, his plans are in place and he is going to fulfill them. Mm -hmm. And um, we know that he's going to fulfill them because he is a God of truth, but also because of you know, prophecies uh, related to the first coming of Christ and uh, the deliverance of Israel, and all that kind of thing that he's done. You know, when people think of prophecy, Pastor, they usually think in terms of, you know, some spectacular or unique thing that's going to take place. And, uh, you know, how many, you know, will the Antichrist arise out of Portugal or whatever it is you want to discuss? But, you know, the, the real issue is, that um, prophecy doesn't necessarily satisfy some of our curiosities because that's not the purpose of it it is it is given to us to change the way we think and the way we live and the way we make decisions the way we prioritize life
0: that's great as we come to a close i'm wondering if you could speak directly maybe to some christians listening to this that are struggling with some anxiety and worry right now in the world and maybe some sin in their life and talk to them and describe What's coming next? What as Christians, according to scripture, do we have to look forward to in the imminent future and into eternity? What is next on God's calendar as prophecy is unveiled?
1: Well, there's no doubt about it. And if you get into the Olivet Discourse, you will be seeing this. But the world is headed for a time which Jesus said, there's never been a time like it before. And in saying, making that statement, he quotes from Jeremiah, Joel, and Daniel, who all of them say, this is an absolutely unique period of time. And it is going to be a time which Jesus said that unless those days had been shortened, which I understand means that instead of being a seven year period of time, or maybe three and a half year period of time, if God had allowed it to go for a decade or two, no human being would survive it. And when you look at the book of Revelation, and you begin to look at the body count there, you discover that in two of the 19 judgments, 50% of the world's population is going to perish. Well, if we enter the, the, this time with 8 billion people, that means 4 billion people in two of the judgments are going to perish. Jesus said there's just never been anything like it before. And it's not going to be business as usual. It is going to be one uh, terrible nightmare. And so it is a horror story that the world faces. However, the good news is that that's not its main purpose. If God wanted to judge the world, he could do it in seven minutes. He doesn't need seven years. But his primary purpose is to save people. And the period of tribulation, the seven-year period, is the greatest time of evangelism in human history. Multiplied millions of people, according to Revelation 7, multitudes which cannot be numbered out of every tribe, nation, and tongue are going to come to faith, because what's going to happen is all of the philosophies that people have today, all of the excuses and defenses that they have against God are basically going to evaporate. I tell my students, I can can pretty well bet my next paycheck that in the tribulation period there's not going to be any agnostics and any atheists left. That's not the issue anymore. The issue is Jesus. He is the Savior and coming King. Will you allow him to be your Savior or not? As Ezekiel said, God says through Ezekiel, why will you die? I don't want you to die, but if you won't accept what I have to say, then, then that's going to happen. So it's a great time of evangelism. Now, we don't know when this period of time is coming, but I was just talking with somebody yesterday about some things, and you look at Prophecies like Ezekiel 34 or 39, and the interesting thing is this, that you look at all of, the, uh, of what is going to be, the world is going to be like in the end times, there is nothing that isn't in place. Even the alignment of nations, the growing alignment between Iran and Turkey, all of this uh, is very much a part of the last uh, end time scenarios. Now, I'm not making a prediction because so I have no idea, you know. But Jesus did say as to the Pharisees, you can discern the weather, but can't you see the signs of the times? And so apparently we are to be observant. And um, you know, people say, Well, what are, what, what do you think about the are we in the end times? Well, yeah, we are. The end times started with the first coming of Christ and will end with the second coming. But if you mean the end of the end times. The one thing that had to take place was that Israel had to be back in the land, and as of about 2006, half the Jews of the world are now back in Israel for the first time since the first century. This is unprecedented, it's unheard of, there's nothing like it in human history. Israel's presence in the land as an unbelieving nation, which is what they are, is the prerequisite for the tribulation period, which is the time when Israel's going to come to faith. And become the nation that God always intended them to be. So as Jesus told his apostles when they asked him, "Is are you setting up the kingdom at this time? He said, well, you know, I'm going to go into a far country. I'm going to get authority to rule and I'm coming back. Now, in the meantime, you guys work, do my business until I come back. And so that's, that's the great privilege that we have is to refocus our attention off of our own problems, our own issues, and so on, and to refill focus on Jesus as and and the Lord of our lives, and to and to serve Him. That's the greatest fulfillment in life. And when we, if I could give one illustration, I don't want to prolong this unnecessarily. But you go back to the Book of Job. You know, people today you know they have problems, and I understand they're very real problems. They have losses. Uh, they have break breakup of relationships, financial distresses, physical, all of these you know, diseases, all of these things are very real and they are very painful. I don't think anyone today would, would want to match themselves with Job, who lose, loses in one moment of time 10 children. Now, I have four kids, and by the blessing of God, we haven't lost any of them. I can't imagine losing every one of your kids, all 10 of them. Plus, incredible wealth, the richest man in the area, plus he loses his health when God gives Satan permission to go after him. And you got to know that whatever it was that Job had physically, uh, Satan dreamed that one up as the worst of the worst. So here's a guy, he's lost his health, lost his wealth, he's lost his children, he is now spit upon as he sits in the dump, in the town dump, the teenage delinquents are mocking him. He used to be the man who sat in the gate of the city. Now they spit on him. They mock him. And so what's the solution anyway? I mean, come on. Well, the solution you know, comes about when God speaks to him. But God never really explains to him, hey, Job, let me tell you about Satan came into heaven one time, and let me tell you about what. No, what Job, what God does is he forces Job. To refocus on him. And once Job did that, everything changed. And that's where we need to be. We live life, we have difficulties, and we can focus on those. And I don't mean to get, you know, kind of like hyper spiritual here. The problems are very real, but the focus needs to be on the risen Christ, on the fact that he is our great priest right now in our coming King, and to focus on serving Him and living for Him. That changes how we do life. That changes the way trials look. That changes everything in our lives. And again, this is not some um, sort of um, panacea where you wave a, a Bible over it, but it has to do with our focus. In fact, that's what Hebrews says. Sorry, I keep coming back to Hebrews. I I don't know why I keep doing that. But Hebrews 3.1 says this, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And when he says consider Jesus, he doesn't say, "Mm, kind of think about Jesus. It says, fix your attention on him. That's the solution. These people were apparently facing the Neronian persecutions. And he says, fix your attention on jesus the apostle um this is the only time that's used of jesus in the new testament but he is the one sent from god to do his will and he's our great high priest of course our coming king that's where the focus needs to be and bible prophecy does that because what it does pastor it it enables us to see that god does have a plan and purpose that this world may be chaotic But it really isn't. I mean, God has exactly what he's going to do. He knows and he's headed in that direction. And someday, it might be sooner than we think, he is going to execute his plan because he wants to save men and he's going to bring in that tribulation period. In the meantime, you and I have got to uh, up our game. We need to um, be more diligent, more focused. We need to be asking the question, how in the world can I serve Christ today? You know, I'm, I'm technically retired, but my prayer is, Lord, I want to serve you today. What can I do today to serve you? And it's amazing. People come along, issues happen, so on. I want to serve you today. And everybody can do that. This is not the guys in the ministry who do this. This is every believer uh, has this opportunity to serve the living Christ. And prophecy helps us in an immeasurable way to get our focus correct consider Jesus, says the writer to the Hebrews. Anyway, that that's my expectation for today.
0: Even so, come Lord Jesus come yeah. Thank you very much Dr. Benware, for helping us to consider Jesus today. In a time of for many of us, this is a time of unique uncertainty and suffering and, and you are reminding us to lift our eyes up out of the muck and mire of our uncertainty and our our inconveniences and our pain and look upon that which is certain, which is what is promised. The God who has fulfilled his promises in the past will fulfill his promises he's made for the future. And we are to keep our eyes locked on him for the hope that we have.
1: Exactly. And I think Satan has a very clever approach and that is to keep our eyes focused on ourselves. The philosophies of our cultures does that. You know, it's, it's me and what's best for me and all of this. And so the focus is always back on us. And the scriptures are saying, and, and the guys who wrote this, they aren't living on some Caribbean island in a hammock sipping iced tea. They are going through incredibly difficult times. And their answer to it all is refocus, refocus, refocus. And the scriptures help us do that. Psalm 2 is great for example, in doing that.
0: Thank you very much. Yeah.
1: Minister to a little bit to your people.
0: You have. Thank you very much for uh, ministering to us in that way. Dr. Ben, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are encouraged and learned something new. Visit Oak Ridge to listen to sermons and for more information.